Coming up in this month's LISD podcast, Superintendent Dr. Lori Rapp and Board President Tracy Miller tackle some challenging subjects along with some insight of what lies ahead for LISD. The LISD podcast number seven starts right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to LISD podcast number seven. Well, today, as we do each month, we pull back the curtain just a little bit to help you see something about about LISD that you probably didn't know before. And today, we have two people. I can't think of any better people right now to talk about these issues that we're going to talk about. We have our superintendent, Dr. Lori Rapp, and we have Tracy Miller, our board president. So before we get started, I'd like to introduce you to two of our new sponsors today. We have the Hart Realty Team, and we have BOE Texas, and you'll hear more from them in just a few minutes. So let's get right to it. You guys ready? Ready. All right, here we go. School funding, a great topic to, to start with. You know, um, all the public schools, we're all in the same boat together. We're facing some real challenges concerning funding. So what would you say we have the, the state legislative sessions coming up? What's the number one focus that you guys have and, and that we have going into these sessions? Yeah, Bill, thank you so much for having us today. We, we appreciate the opportunity to talk about what's going to be upcoming with the legislative session and advocating for our public schools. And I would speak first to our advocacy around the basic allotment. One of the things that we know is that inflation is at an all-time high. And the basic allotment that we get per student is is one of the key pieces of funding that our district receives. And our simple request of the legislature is they just consider raising that basic allotment uh, in line with inflation. We know ultimately as fuel costs as fuel cost increase, cost of insurance for our buildings, which is not something people tend to think about increased. And then of course the cost of providing services to students has increased cost of pay has increased and I hope we're able to get into that in a little bit about salary increases for staff so our you know our request is we realize it's too big to think about overhauling the entire financial system that's not what we're asking we're just simply saying uh, could they when they get into session ensure that they raise that basic allotment that school districts get per student so, you know, um, everybody talks about it. It's been on the news a lot and uh, the state projection about this great big surplus, 27, is it 27 billion with yes. a B, billion right. dollars. So, you know, most people would say, well, problem solved, right? I mean, you know, that, that uh, we're going to get a lot of that and that's going to go to education. So what do you think, Mr. Miller? Yeah, I think, uh, thank you, Bill, for the question. Uh, you know, a number of sessions ago, we had a $9 billion surplus, and a lot of promises were made around education reform, uh, school finance reform. You know, up until then, the last time education had been transformed in, or reformed in, in Texas was 1984, and that was the divestiture of AT&T. Uh, so here we're now on a $27 billion surplus and a lot of promises being made of how the legislature is going to take care of teachers, how they're going to uh, reduce uh, property value uh, responsibilities on taxpayers and uh, the burden on taxpayers. And at the end of the day, um, we'll see what happens. The history shows that education doesn't generally benefit from those surpluses. There are many other 
things that have encumbered those funds. And so we're we're very hopeful that, in fact, uh, this year uh, it will turn into something that's beneficial for ISDs, including, like Dr. Rapp said, the basic allotment. But there are other things that come along with the thing when, when the state puts something uh, in and, in, you know, requires of us to do something, right? Uh, they're going to give us some money. A lot of times they ask us to do things they don't give us money for, a lot of unfunded mandates. And what that's created and parents have seen during COVID is an increased amount of responsibility on teachers to do things that they don't have the capacity to uh, fulfill during the week or during their days. Uh, these are things that have House bill or Senate bills attached to them or some uh, mandate from the commissioner and we're required to to educate kids on things, some not, some things that uh, parents, uh, you know, have some discomfort in, but they're required by law. And so I th- it's a complicated mix of what kind of funding and, and what kind of responsibilities come uh, with that funding uh, going forward. Wow. That's that's awesome. And that's something, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to hear any place else but right here. That's that's some really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rapp, anything uh, you know, follow I think up with that? Mr. Miller likes to talk about, and it's an important point, that uh, when raises were passed for teachers, that was a year of a surplus, I believe. And we were given $300,000 in Louisville ISD for raises for staff. And actually, 6,500 staff members. Exactly. And so there was not a windfall to districts, and our school board still in that year committed millions of dollars of raises. You know, Mr. Miller, you want to speak to just that commitment of the school board to do what the legislature intended, even though the funding was not provided? Yeah, that legislative session, there was a lot of talk by the governor and the lieutenant governor, and the lieutenant governor essentially is the president of the Senate, um, and by the Speaker of the House, that they were going to increase classroom salaries uh, to over $100,000. As a matter of fact, I was there on PTA days and saw the lieutenant governor Governor, take a picture with an advocacy group between the chambers, and he turned around and said, and we're going to get uh, six-figure salaries for teachers. At the end of the day, um, the amount of money allocated to LISD in that funding in House Bill 3 was $285,000. To put it in perspective, we spent $13 million. Uh, so you can imagine after that first budget meeting, the first call I made was one to, our, to one of our state reps, and I was quickly on the phone with, with the, uh, the head of the education committee uh, the next day, and uh, we were having a conversation where they really thought that the amount of money allocated in the formula to ISDs like us was much more significant than it was. Now, one of the intentions of the legislature at that time was to take care of tenured teachers. So we actually built a model that said mm-hmm. teachers that were, I think were 20 plus would uh, get a higher percentage than teachers in other uh, job bands or, or tenure. And uh, we, we honored essentially uh, what the legislature intended to do, mm-hmm. to go back to the legislature and say, hey, this is what you intended. We created a framework to support that. Uh, and then we funded it at a substantial level beyond what um, was allocated to us. Wow. So 20 plus. So that 20, 20 plus years of, of service within LISD. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, wow. That's awesome. When we come back, we'll have our guests take on two new items that are in the news. Not actually new items. They've been around for quite a while, including vouchers and the Parental Bill of Rights. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Well, we'd like to welcome Ashley Hart, owner of Hart Realty Team, as one of our awesome sponsors to the LISD podcast. 
Ashley launched her real estate career as a consultant for Chip and Joanna Gaines at Magnolia Realty. It was there that she learned that home isn't just a handful of walls. It's the very place where you become who you were made to be. After many successful years in the industry, Ashley now runs the Heart Realty team, where she leads agents through exciting client transitions, creating unforgettable experiences every step of the way. The Hart Realty team, brokered by Keller Williams, provides the highest level of professional home services where client rapport is paramount across every stage of the transaction. Ashley has a saying, if we aren't friends by the end of this deal, then I've done something wrong. For more information on how Ashley and her team can help you and your family with your home servicing needs, give Ashley a call at 210-378-3931 or check her out on Facebook at Ashley Hart Realtor. All right, everybody, welcome back. There's been a lot in the news lately about school vouchers. We've all heard about that, and I think there's some misunderstanding about really, really what it is, and mm-hmm. then also how it could affect us. So first, let's let's get uh, a, a brief explanation of what are school vouchers, and then we'll talk a little bit about the impact that they might have to LISD. Yeah, so, you know, Bill, at its simplest form, a voucher would be a payment provided directly to a family in order to uh, take that amount of money that they're given and go choose a different education uh, organization in order to spend that money with. So if families were given, let's say, $6,000 directly to them, they would take that $6,000 and then they would go try to spend that money at a private school or another uh, another educational entity that cost and and they would take their $6,000 and and then do whatever uh, that school requires which we know often a uh, school of private private tuition is well more than what the cost of a voucher would provide of course vouchers would not as we know it provide transportation for families to wherever they may want to spend the voucher. So, you know, vouchers essentially put money directly in the hands of a family that would have gone to Louisville ISD. Instead, it's going to go to the family of of the children and let them spend it wherever they choose that they want to, possibly maybe even keep it uh, if they're choosing to homeschool. And and then, of course, uh, the question becomes, what does the accountability look like? for parents that take those dollars in the form of a voucher if they choose to homeschool what does the accountability look like for that private school that's being willing to take that voucher money that the parents are bringing to them the cost of education of course is well more than what six thousand dollars on a voucher may provide you know it's interesting because Texas ranks, depending on what study you look at, uh, Texas ranks about 42nd out of all the states on funding for public education. Yet our public education has some of the highest graduation rates in the country. Doesn't make sense. And graduation rates have actually risen even with the pandemic. And so the concern that we would have around vouchers is that Uh, Any diversion of money from public education, which isn't fully funded in the first place, uh, only continues to have a negative impact on the programs and services that our public schools can provide for kids. 
Well, that's good information because, I, like I said, I think people, they, they just have a misunderstanding about it. I mean, they a lot of people think it's a great, great thing, and then some until you really get down into it, you really know the details there. Yeah. So where are we with this in the government? I mean, we've heard about this for a long time. I mean, this has been topic of discussion uh, along the lines of education for a long time. Is this, is it near? Is this something that could really happen in the state of Texas or? Yeah, well, I think uh, <clears throat> it's very likely this session you'll see a heavy push on uh, vouchers. Uh, and we'll talk about parent bill of rights and those types of things. Uh, I would say that, you know, there's a misnomer at a core level about the benefit of vouchers. So let's just say at a, at a basic level, um, we don't disagree that parents should choose the options for their kids' education. Uh, of course we believe that. And Texas is a, a compulsory education state, so it based on one type of class being taught at that institution or homeschool, that would can qualify them for uh, being, having access to uh, education, whatever the parents choose. Now, we get into how are tax dollars used, and even if you look at the current environment of some competition that's created with charter schools, uh, we just don't have educational equity. And it's interesting, this is a primary push from the conservative uh, branch of the legislature, and uh, most of them are uh, fair trade, free trade people, right? And what happens here is we've lost the concept of, we've focused on free trade, meaning let me take my tax dollars or vouchers or whatever stipend that is and apply it to another form of education, but don't have some type of fair trade applied to it. So in other words, we uh, will, what's the trigger that a parent would use if this is really about the child? What is the trigger that would be used for the parent to receive the vouchers? Now, what is it then on the receiving side, the institution side, uh, where they would receive the vouchers instead of them going to public schools or charters? What responsibilities do they have? Do they have uh, reporting responsibilities back to the state? Do the, they have to track data on the students? Do they have to provide transportation? Do they provide special ed services, English language uh, services, I mean, uh, food services, those types of things? And if you you don't have that type of educational equity within charter schools, let alone now saying I can send uh, money to a, a private school or other option. And generally speaking, by the way, the homeschooling movement is not an advocate of this. Why? The reason is, is that they're concerned that there would be some type of stipulation tied to it. Now, the Senate has generally passed these their bill um, without any ties, uh, you know, back to uh, any performance related to the money. The, the House is generally, because they represent a lot of rural districts, has been where the, the vouchers have been killed. But you see a very strong push, especially amongst the right, to uh, have vouchers uh, supported in the legislature. And so I would say, you know, I'll speak for myself, not everybody on the board, but I think that, again, we at a core want parents to be able to choose an option that's best for their kids. Of, of course we do. Um, when it comes to the responsibility that we have under the Constitution, because like any of those institutions that would receive that money, we actually raise our hand to support the Texas Constitution. And in it, it says the legislature shall have the responsibility of providing a system of efficient, free public schools. So what happens to the public schools if, if parents are taking their money elsewhere? If they take their money elsewhere, that's fine, as long as they're held to the same standards that we are. And so we, we get measured against... 
a free trade model but not a fair trade model. And I think that's what will be uh, up for discussion in the uh, legislature. And I think it'll be one of the bigger discussions as it relates to education in this session. Yeah, and I would add on to that, you know, what we, what our stance is, is that if uh, all, if money, taxpayer money is going to be distributed to other systems, charter schools, vouchers, what have you, that they have to have the same accountability rules that we do in traditional public schools, that students should have to take the STAR test if that's a measure of accountability, that uh, whoever's taking that money should have to be graded on the A to F system if that's the accountability system. You know, if there's responsibilities to public information request, that they're obligated to abide by PIR and that they're obligated to have meetings and transparency about how they're spending that money. You know, I find it interesting that we we hear all the time that we have to be held accountable because of the taxpayer dollars that we receive. We don't disagree with that. In fact, we have the highest level of accountability there can be in the form of an elected body that oversees our school district. But what I what I would say is that uh, we we need accountability for all the systems that get put into place. There's a hefty amount of taxpayer dollars that go to higher education institutions, University of Texas, Texas Tech, um, you know, Texas A&M. They don't have the same level of accountability that K-12 education has. For some reason, we have laser-focused accountability on the pre-K-12 education sector, which we're happy to have accountability. But what we are advocating for is that wherever money goes that provides a pre-K-12 education, they have to play by the same rules as traditional public schools. So if I hear you right, let's take the homeschooling, for example. So if there's a voucher situation and they decide to pull out of LSD, let's say, or pull out of public, public education mm-hmm. and go to a homeschooling environment, currently, is there, is there a federal mandate or any kind of mandate that, 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 that holds them accountable for the education level that they get being homeschooled? There's no accountability to any level of outcomes. Okay. And we know that, obviously, within LSD, they're going to get the very best education that's possible, obviously, right. where that money is being spent. Yeah. And so, I, I would add too that you know I think I think stories uh, are important, right? So if we say that um, a single mom uh, has there's some trigger in an in a elementary and a middle school, and a mom has a kids in elementary and middle, maybe the elementary school uh, child has some type of uh, dyslexia or MTA, you know, uh, special needs. The middle schoolers in orchestra, maybe they've got a high schooler in football, and the mom is working a job, and and the option given to that mom is to homeschool the kids and get six thousand dollars per kid. So now let's look at a private institution that would provide some of those services. The mother has to get them there, provide food services because the government, the U.S. government provides free and subsidized lunches. Uh, The mother, a lot of these institutions, uh, private schools, don't provide the services that were required from a special ed perspective or social-emotional perspective or even character ed standards that were required to teach uh, that have become somewhat controversial in the last year. And so now... 
the mom has to get the three kids to those events and to pay extra money for a booster club fees and things that you know we would provide as a matter of equity for all of our students. And so if you play those stories out, um, the question is, what's the benefit, right? And then you say, well, within LISD, if a school is underperforming, if that's a trigger, and by the way, the measure used by the state would probably be STAR, which everybody, regardless of where their kids go to school, agrees that STAR is a bad system. Mm-hmm. If you say to a Coram Deo or a Liberty Christian parent, you know, they, they say they want vouchers, and you say, do you want to take the STAR test? I mean, aggressively, they'll say, no, well, neither do we. We don't want to have our kids take the STAR test. Yet it is a fundamental measure of accountability. And so the actual benefit when in LISD, you can transfer your kid to almost any school you want. Mm-hmm. And we're increasing the, the full immersion programs or enrichment programs. We're increasing STEM academies. If you want to transfer your kid to an adjacent school district because they pro- provide a better service, or if you're in an adjacent school district, you want them to get... So there's school choice uh, within much of a, a, a denser Texas, maybe not in rural Texas, there is school choice. And so this pro- the solution that's being applied universally by what I think will be the, the House and the Senate is not well thought out, in my opinion, as it relates to ultimate consequence, and that is accountability. And so we they ask for accountability in everything else. Property tax assessments, uh, you know, uh, schools, roads, sales tax usage, right, et cetera. And, and yet here's there was one where they're going to say, you know, we may not have any accountability required uh, uh, tied to it. And I think that's a, um, an unreasonable and unfair thing to do. Well, this, know, this, oh, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. Well, one final thing I'll just add on to that. Uh, you know, expectation of common rules. Of course, we, we absolutely do not teach the common core state standards. And my question would be, if a voucher system is put into place, will there be a prohibition on the entities that are taking that voucher money to ensure they, too, are not teaching the Common Core state standards? You know, there was a bill passed in the last legislative session to address uh, how how classrooms address instruction regarding race and social justice issues. Will people who take voucher money also have those same laws and rules applied to them as well? Boy, one thing is for absolute sure, it's not as simple as a lot of people may think, that uh, the people that are really pushing vouchers, it seems to be that, well, if they don't like one particular thing that's going on in their school, then we need to have choice to go anywhere else we have, mm-hmm. which I guess fundamentally is, is is true, but at the same time, there's so much else. Look at this facility that we're in. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is a perfect, our whole CTE uh, situation here at LISD uh, is absolutely phenomenal that, you know, in those situations, it wouldn't be available. Right. And we all you know? know, I mean, as we talked about what the Constitution provision is for education, it free and efficient, and you lose efficiency the more that you divert the money away from the larger systems that are in place. They're, they were put into place in order to be able to benefit from, uh, just like this facility benefits from being in a school district with 50,000 students and and all of the, the property and homes that we have in this school district. The minute that you start diverting more funds away from that system, the less efficient you actually become. Yeah. Is there any one place that our viewers and listeners could go to for more information on on this, pros and cons of everything, basically? Is there is there any particular thing? I would say our legislative priorities that we put 
on the school district website are a great place to start, just in very simple language about uh, the stance of our school board and what we'll be advocating for in the upcoming legislative session. Okay, so I, I know. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was go just going to add a thought. I, I, uh, two, two things. One is, remember, uh, there's a, a certain amount of money that comes from a Fed level based on free and subsidized lunches. These are title dollars. That, um, that's the solution to that. If if you're going to take your backpack full of cash, so to speak, and go someplace else, uh, that's state money. That's not federal money. So some of the services that are very important, especially in uh, lower socioeconomic schools, is not. Uh, taken into consideration in the holistic picture of providing for a student. And I think we all would agree that we need to look at that. Um, the, the other thing is you, you CTE as an example. So we hear a lot nowadays around, uh, well, we just need to be te teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic. And uh, of course we need to be teaching that. But uh, most employers are not going to look at your grades in, in English and math and science and say, well, okay, I'm going to take you into – or, or universities, by the way, they're going to look at a, a round, well-rounded student. And we know that students who come to a facility like this and get a uh, certificate and then maybe go on and get a, an associate's degree will actually have more earning power over their lifetime than someone who gets a, a degree. We were, uh, as we were getting ready for this in the green room, talking to two of our students, helping us get ready and the things that, that they plan to do with the services that we provide here. And, and I think the other thing is we've got to think about what are the things that keep kids in school? It, you know, Sometimes it's athletics. Sometimes it's fine arts. Sometimes it's cosmetology. Sometimes it's elect electrical or CSI class here. There's a lot of things here that keep kids in school and then inspire them because if they're at an age in high school where they're really thinking through what do they want to do, where they're starting to form a plan. And, and I think that um, – you know, there, there's just this general sense that this creates um, educational freedom, right? The educational freedom is the answer. Um, it 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 has to be. It it could be if we got the same freedoms that everybody else did. And all we're saying is that there needs to be some level of parity for the benefit of the students, some level of accountability to show that kids are. We get measured on kids that are on grade level in third grade, or we know that at least, uh, you know, scientifically or whatever, that if a kid is on grade level in third grade in reading and math or uh, showing six months of progress, that they have a better likelihood to be successful. And so we're, the, and we're measured on that, right? We have a community-based accountability system that the community is involved with, that the tax, your tax dollars that come into us um, actually go to to having a system set up that includes the community in how we're accountable with the use of those resources. And so it's really a significant amount of uh, accountability that we have, and we're just saying let's all play by the same rules if that's what the plan is. Very well said, really well said. So along kind of the same lines as far as challenging topics, the Parental Bill of Rights, that's another trending item that's mm -hmm. been in the news a lot lately. And something I think that also um, has some misunderstanding and what this is all about. Everybody seems to have a different opinion on that. So can we kind of briefly do the same thing, kind of explain what that is and then 
where it is currently and does that have any impact or how can that impact LSD? Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the misconceptions right now, there actually is already a parental bill of rights in the Texas Education Code, Chapter 26. And that can be found online. Been around for a long time. Been right? around for a long time. In fact, it's it has numerous elements to it. One of the things uh, that I made a note of that's already in there is access to teaching materials. We already have the ability for our parents to ask to see any of the materials, to preview materials, to opt their child out of lessons, to ask for an alternative assignment. Our principals and our teachers work with parents all the time regarding uh, questions and concerns that they may have. And where can that information be found? That information about the Texas Education Code can be found online with the legislature. All you have to do actually is just Google Texas Education Code Chapter 26, and the whole entire current Parental Bill of Rights will be there. And it already spells out access to the academic programs, access to student record, uh, access to public information. As we mentioned earlier, you know, we have a, a robust system by which people can access public information requests and we have ways for people to submit online that you we're a governmental entity right and so all of those things apply a process for complaints that's one of the things that i hear right now in this renewed conversation if you will around parental bill of rights we already have a robust process for we work with parents all the time start with your principal start with your classroom teacher share what your concerns are what what questions do you have it's it's interesting that we that there seems to be a need right now that parents need to have a a right to resolve their complaints they already have that they have a right to be able to come all the way to the school board. We have a robust robust process in place should a more formal procedure need to take place regarding complaints. So I would encourage all of our listeners to understand that parents are the decision maker for their child. What we What we cannot have are parents making decisions for other people's children. And and we will absolutely work with a parent. What kind of classes do they want their child to have? We've got all these choices that we've been talking about. Parents should drive. What type of courses and programs is my child going to take in high school? Uh, that, that should be a family decision. That decision to have access to materials for your child absolutely already exists. Well, that's that's good information, too, because, you know, there have been a couple of unfortunate situations across the country that have happened, I think, that have brought this to the forefront for a lot of people. And then it goes off in all kind of different directions, I guess, like, well, like it never existed. But as you're saying, it's been there for a long time. That's right. And I think what happens is the national narrative, to your point, gets put on top of what we have in Texas. And we we have to be careful to be sure that we research our our state and what we already have and locally what we already have. Well, you know, we have the best schools in Texas. You know that. Yes, right? so, so I that's, absolutely there's Somebody came that. up with that website. Yeah, too, I, I, I don't know. I, it was a good, good idea. I'm not sure where that came from. Uh, I, I would add to what Dr. Rapp said, and I think it's, again, you know, often people who are crit, crit, criticizing the system, whether it's LISD or public schools in Texas, uh, refuse to sit down and have a conversation about it. And, uh, you know, I've tried to uh, be very available 
uh, with people. They always get a response from me. If you think we're teaching that, let's sit down and have a conversation. I know Dr. Rapp does the same. Yes. Some of that we've done together, uh, some of it separately. And so what's interesting is that most of the people that continue to press the issue have never sat down with us to have a conversation, just like Parents' Bill of Rights. Parents' Bill of Rights got a lot of attention when Glenn Youngkin was elected governor in Virginia. And this summer, as Dr. Rapp knows, I got an opportunity to go speak on a panel with Scott Rasmussen, the Secretary of Education for Virginia. Now, the person that was to come in to fix the things that, you know, the the, the other party uh, um, was saying uh, was not the parents' responsibility. And then, of course, we know that in Arizona, they approved vouchers. And so we had a person running for school board in the Scottsdale Unified School District. Some interesting perspectives. Number one, uh, the lady from Scottsdale, I asked her, asked her about vouchers. She said, well, there is no place for the kids to go. So it's it looks good. It's getting caught up in court anyway, but there's no place for it to go. Uh, the, the Secretary of Education from the Commonwealth, it, very interesting because she was pressed very hard on vouchers being the solution to a lot of this, right? So parents should have these rights. And so, again, we would say they have those rights and we invite mm-hmm. them in not to just come and speak at a board meeting, which they're welcome to do, but sit in and engage us and have a conversation about their concerns and let us share with them what we're obligated to by law, but how we're actually doing things. And, you know, most of the time when parents do come in and sit down with us, they have a, an epiphany that, well, I, I didn't understand that. I didn't know I have access to that. And the reason they didn't think or know that is the national narrative. So mm-hmm. interestingly, in Virginia, which got a lot of attention, when the, the commissioner of the Commonwealth of Education of the Commonwealth is asked, are you going to implement vouchers? She said, listen, there's a lot to do to increase the standard of education in the Commonwealth. That is not the priority. And so, again, it's this balance of people saying that the answer needs to be, I take my money with me and I have some, or I have some parent bill of rights that give me some form of access that's already granted in our state. And we're talking about our state. We're not talking about Chicago Public Schools or LA Unified School District. We're talking about in Texas, in LISD, which is what we've been given uh, charge over. Wow. Well, I know we need to probably, no pun intended, wrap this portion of this up. (laughs) But uh, to summarize on that, I would like to tell all of our listeners, I mean, obviously, uh, do your homework, right? Mm -hmm. And and research. Go to these websites and and look around. I mean, I, I think... People have got to agree that Dr. Rapp is probably the most approachable superintendent 100%. that our school district has probably ever had. And and from from my perspective, our entire board's that way. So take advantage of that. You know, go out and, and contact these people and uh, go online, do your homework, and find out about this. Because like as Dr. Rapp said, some of this stuff's been around and on the books for a long time. Okay, right. quick question about COVID. Uh, hopefully that's behind us. Hopefully we don't have to worry about it anymore, but you never know. Uh, I know it's always good to prepare for whatever the next, you know, so-called emergency could come down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, is the state doing anything uh, about, you know, along those lines of keeping us safe? Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, I think we we definitely are concerned about the ESSER money that we've been using. Of course, that came from the federal government through 
uh, passed through to us from the state. And we know that that's been providing a lot of the resources we have when it comes to the mental health of our students. And, and it's been also funding some of the unfunded mandates that came from the state as well in regards to House Bill 4545 and closing some gaps of learning. And then, of course, I talk all the time about you can't have learning loss when you never got to learn it in the first place. You've had interruptions to learning that will take some time to close. But as far as safety goes, I know, Mr. Miller, you know, we have concerns around the safety allotment. So you want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we, we get about $10 per student uh, for safety and security. Um, we have um, spent this year, we'll spend $3 million more than we receive from the state. By the way, this is very similar in special ed. We receive about $40 million. Mm -hmm. We spend $40 million and we receive from the state because it's important to provide those services. But in safety and security, we, of course, with some of the incidents that took place, the incident that took place earlier in uh, 2022, um, we stepped up and decided to spend additional monies on top of the $30 million we spent after the last bond package where we mm -hmm. secured quite a few facilities. $10 is, is not sufficient. And remember, safety and security is often considered a physical building and doors and that type of thing. There are all kinds of other things, mental health and those types of things that, again, some will critique that, that is that our job? It, 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 Dr. Rapp said to me once, if kids are hungry, tired, sick, scared, or don't come to school, we can't educate them. And we receive a lot of kids that are in a difficult situation. And so we we have to make sure that we're doing what we can to take care of them, help them get ready to learn. You, most people have heard Dr. Rapp's story uh, along this lines. And, and really, from a physical infrastructure perspective, we're going to continue as a board uh, to do what we can uh, to make sure that you know we're not a porous organization, but that we really uh, identify ways to keep our staff and students safe. I'm proud of the work that we've done. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's not known to people because we, uh, by law, are allowed to have those discussions. We do have a safety and security committee that is required by legislation. I'm on that. Miss mm -hmm. Lasan's on that. Matt Garrett runs that. And so we're really proud of that. I would say, you know, Dr. Rapp wouldn't tell you this, but even in the situation with with um, the, the school in, in South Texas, uh, the, the, the interim superintendent was the same interim superintendent that we had. Uh, and we're very proud of having him. And he's, he's reached out to Dr. Rapp and our communications team and our safety and security team to say, hey, can you come and, and, and maybe shed some light on how to address some of these things? And I think we should take great pride uh, because we have great pride in, in Mr. Patterson. Uh, he did a great job for us. As remember, this is part of the result of that. And we're, we're very proud of the leadership that Dr. Rapp has provided. And so a lot of these things, keeping this organized is very difficult. And she's very good at it. She's a math teacher and very organized and structured and very, uh, pro uh, you know, uh, proactive in us addressing these things. And so we're, we couldn't be prouder of the hire that we made. We think we've had a great start to the year. We've got a lot to do with the legislature coming up. We've got a lot to do within our own schools. And we're excited about um, what's what's ready for uh, coming for the next three, nine weeks, I think, mm -hmm. is what we've got next. So uh, we're looking forward to it. All right. Well, great. Thank you very much for that one. Now, coming up, you're not going to want to miss this because coming up next, we might hear some good news about your taxes and also some information about the new LISD budget. So we'll be right back. Don't go away.
Hello, this is Sean and Marcus with Bank of England Mortgage coming to you on your LISD podcast series. That's right. LISD family, we're here for you and give all outlets for anything involving mortgages. If you're looking to buy. If you're if you're looking to, to refinance, if or you want to like get coached on you, on how to buy a house, down yeah. payment assistance. Where do we start? There's a lot of information that we can give you and point you in the right direction. That's Plus, right. We've got your own page located on our website at boetexas.com slash LISD. That's right. And that picks up all of the specialty programs that we can offer for all LISD staff and family. So reach out to us. Let us know what we can do. We're here to help. Signing off. It's Sean and Marcus. Don't get confused. He went to Marcus and his name's Marcus. boetexas.com slash LISD. So now we want to spend just a few minutes talking about something that everybody wants to know, and that's their taxes. Uh, With the world situation and inflation and everything that's going on, are we going to continue to see our taxes going up? Well, you know, taxes for uh, school districts are predominantly uh, a levy of taxes against the valuation of your properties on a per 100 value at a residential level. Um, after House Bill 3, there was a compression of a tax rate. We were at about a dollar four for our general operations, and, and that was compressed. What's interesting is LISD made no moves to increase the rate before the legislature made a move to compress it. Most districts around the state where they could did a tax ratification election move from their dollar four to a dollar thirteen, so they put themselves in a stronger position to actually tax the the taxpayers at a higher level, even though optically it looks like the tax rate went down from that perspective. The issue here is for us two things: one, the valuations are skyrocketing. This is a very popular place to live in. Um, we know that uh, we've been working very closely with the Denton Central Appraisal District. Uh, LISD has been a leader in some of the, the changes there, and we're proud of that. Um, but we lowered the tax rate this year a bit, um, and we're proud of that. That does not mean that your taxes went down. This is an important distinction as a matter of transparency and truth in taxation. We set the tax rate Uh, This is a constitutional requirement. This is how the legislature gets to. It shall be the duty of the legislature. They do that primarily through the means of us taxing our, our, our citizens. We can tax on two things. One is the general maintenance and operations. That rate uh, changes a little bit in the last couple of years based on a compression value. The debt service is a little bit different. How we fund capital, if you're if a business person, you understand CapEx and OpEx, how we build facilities like this, how we upgrade facilities that are aging, that type of thing. We do that through a different tax rate. Uh, and so we've been very much um, done a better job of the, that tax rate than we than we thought. We were much lower than we ever anticipated and what the voters agreed to. We've kept that low. Mm-hmm. But but the tax bill itself is, is going up. And that is a that is a function of the legislature um, within uh, a certain means of recapture. Um, and you may have a question around that, but in recapture, they're taking about $54 million of our money. So if you look at this over the last two or three years, our CFO has analyzed it. We actually have received no benefit from the increase in tax collection from, from an ISD perspective within LISD. We've sent most of that back to the state, so the state has been the benefactor of that. 
The state mm -hmm. continues to talk about property value uh, reform. Uh, we'll see if they do that in this legislature. But to your one of your earlier questions, they have $27 billion. One of, ways, one of the ways for them to take care of that is Dr. Rapp's answer, the basic allotment. And that would take some pressure off from a taxation perspective. The, the community cannot um, continue to take this pressure. On, on taxation. But but I just want people to understand LISD has not been a benefactor of this increased uh, kind of outrageous valuations that are taking place. We, we have to send the money back to the state and the state parcels that back out to, to poorer districts. So will we see any additional tax uh, decrease? Probably in some rates, uh, in total tax payments, I I think we'd be naive and misrepresented if we said that that, that would happen, unless we have a great legislative session. And we all hope for that, right? Yeah. We all hope for that. And that's a great segue right into the budget. So just a couple of brief questions about the budget. And you mentioned recapture, the, the dreaded word recapture. With everything else going on and with the, the lack of funding and the problems that we're having with funding – and, and, of course, recapture. How does this impact the bottom line for, for, for LSD and the budget going forward? Yeah, you know, this last year, of, or for this school year, the board passed $13.9 million worth in raises. And I use that as an example because, as Mr. Miller shared, they also are having to account for a $54 million recapture payment. And and what that means $54 is million. $54 million. Meaning? Right off the top, Just, whatever monies are there, go back right. to the state. That's right. And and honestly, some of that money is sitting in that $27 billion surplus because not all of it gets redistributed back out to uh, lower property tax wealthy school districts. It should. That's, the way, that's how the system is built. That is not in actuality what's happening. And and I think that our that as that recapture payment goes up, you know, so if we paid roughly thirty two million dollars in recapture last school year and now we're gonna pay fifty four million dollars, then that impacts the board's ability to pass additional raises for staff. You know, we we would like to keep up with the cost of living. At fifty four million dollars of our budget going back to the state of Texas, that that's an insurmountable challenge. And and then it impacts services for students. And, you know, so that's where our ad, our advocacy point is definitely that we understand. We're, again, we can't ask them necessarily to overhaul the entire system. But we would say that we need more of that money back that we're paying in recapture. Do they need to have some? Yes. Do they need to have all of it? No. And we think that you should make allowances. If you have certain campuses in your school district that have high numbers of special education students, that percentage could allow you to keep some of your recapture. If you have a certain campus that has 90% or more free and reduced lunch, that should allow you to keep some recapture. If you're committing money to raises for staff, that should allow you to keep some of recapture. Uh, one of the stories I like to tell is uh, last in 21-22, we were given $16 million in ESSER money uh, as a hold harmless because attendance rates were impacted by students who were ill and having to stay home with COVID. Our recapture payment went up by $10 million. 
So we didn't realize $16 million to the LISD budget. We we realized $6 million, and the board paid passed more than that in raises to teachers. So our board continues to do what's right for students and staff, but we cannot sustain those large recapture I was just going to say, it's got to be deflating. You know, as, as a former business owner myself, you know, you work hard, you work hard all year, you do the right things. You, 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 you're good stewards of the money, and in our case, good stewards of the tax money. That's and right. then, oh, everything's going fine. But, oh, there's something that's totally out of our control that takes right off the bottom line that you got to send out. It's got to right. be. Yeah. If you're a school district that has kept a low tax rate, which our school board has, and they've lowered the tax rate by 18 cents since 2018-19. And again, to Mr. Miller's point, while, you're, while people are paying more in property taxes, that's not because of the tax rate, right? If you're a school district who has done all of those things, you should get to keep more of that recapture payment. You kept the tax rate low. You did not go out to the voters. You did not ask for the voters to approve a higher tax rate. We have historically had one of the lowest tax rate for our size of district, even pre-compression with with the House bill. And so I think those kind of things should take into account recapture payments. And, and there are many districts right now in November going out for a tax ratification election, asking their voters to increase their tax rate. We understand why. In Louisville ISD, we have not done that and and are still having these large payments we're having to send back. Is there anything that our listeners, once again, as we said earlier, can do, uh, call their state representative, their congressman, write letters or whatever along those lines? Mm-hmm. Can, can you all address that and who they need to do it to so the LISD extended family out there can help with this? Yeah, I think that um, anything that uh, our community can do uh, and we're all about community engagement, right, uh, to reach out to the legislature. Now, uh, during this early voting period and from November till they show up in Austin uh, and start, you know, establishing the budget under SB1 and and as they work through that, that this is the time uh, to put a full court press on them as it relates to the things that are important to public education. You know, the other thing is we, we don't just sit here and say, give us more money. Mm-hmm. We've uh, put together a budget advisory committee that Dr. Rogers established a couple years ago. I think they meet on a quarterly basis. So Dr. Rapp will have the same. We've invited people in to critique our budget. We've had plenty of outside services, audit firms, et cetera, take a look at how we do things. You know, the bond markets evaluate us based on our financials. And it's interesting, in in nine years now, as a trustee, usually when people get their tax payments, we start to get emails about, you know, our taxes are too high, you guys are spending too much money, or even in kind of the current, you know, situation around vouchers and parental choice, people are saying that, you know, we're, we're not responsible in spending our money. What I can tell you is, and I offer to speak to everybody, 100% of the people that have complained to me about the budget have never met to sit down and walk through the budget and say, show us where we can save money. There'll be general broad categories where you shouldn't offer football. Okay. So we shouldn't offer football. You strong schools, strong communities. So you take some of those services away, people aren't going to move in. Your property values are going to tank. And so it's this delicate balance that we're that we have. But we're not sitting here saying just give us more money. Mm-hmm. We're saying don't 
tell us that we have to spend a bunch of money that you're not going to give us money for. Those are unfunded mandates. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue to invite the community in, business leaders, CFOs, bankers, you name it, to, uh, to look at how we're spending our money and see if they've got some ideas and best practices of how we can do you know, some of the things that happen in the business world. I think that's a great that, – that, that, that's very well said, and I think that's even more reason why people need to reach out to you guys and to, to see and to actually do their homework and find out what's really going on. And hopefully that's what this is all about as we pull the curtain back a little bit to let you guys listen to some things that normally you're not going to know, but we're glad that uh, – Yeah, one of the things I would just share, and I, I shared this the other day when I had, had an opportunity to speak to the Metro Crest Chamber, we're one of the largest businesses in Denton County. And, uh, and our ability to employ staff is an economic engine for our county. And from bus drivers to child nutrition to teachers to aides, uh, you know, with, at over 6,800 staff, we provide uh, a livable wage to many people that then go out and also spend money in our community. But with that, we spend around 2% on administration. And a common misconception from people that want to criticize school district budgets is, you know, they are spending way too much money on administration. You spend 2%. The majority of our money goes right out to the schools, right? Right. As a business, we have to have a payroll department. We have to have a technology department. We have to have a business office. All of those things that we are running a business. We are one of the largest businesses. And as such, you incur some business expense with that. And I think people are often misinformed and, and don't treat the education sector with a business mentality when that is absolutely what we are. And, and we are doing a great job of keeping those costs very low. Yeah. Once again, as a former business owner, uh, I would have loved to only had to pay 2% for administration. <laughs> well, you, you know, and it's that? interesting. I think, I think it's a great point about comparing us to the business world. Yeah. You know, if, it you, is a business. if you, if you build a pricing model for a large uh, opportunity with a client and you have built within that model, a corporate allocation, right? Everybody has it. It's an overhead number and you can get two to 4% in a corporate world or a small business world. You would love that because that would go to your bottom line. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, you're talking eight percent or better or or more at least for a lot of these organizations because of the amount of bureaucracy that exists. That's and so, I think it's I think it's and and you know we didn't get to that two percent without working very hard. Mm -hmm. Dr. Rogers and Dr. Rapp worked mm -hmm. hard on it. A lot of you helped work on it. We had a lot of community members help us get there. And I you know you, you know I think. We're at a stage of we need to we need to stop defending uh, how good our model is and just tell people that this is the model. And if you don't think it's a good model or you don't think it's um, an effective model, then show us where we can improve. We continue to invite the community in, uh, w not for one-way conversations, although they're welcome to do that, mm -hmm. but for two-way conversations to sit down with. I mean, I, I don't know how much more open we can be. Mm -hmm to letting the community come in and look at everything that we're doing. And um, I'm proud of us for that. And I think, I think Dr. Rapp has helped lead that. I think Dr. Rapp or Dr. Rogers set the stage for that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we're, again, I, I, we should be very proud of that administrative allocation is, is uh, unheard of. Well, that is a great place to stop. And, and you know, on, on behalf of our entire audience, we thank both of you all for 
coming out today. And I know your, you. your schedules thank is absolutely crazy. So we, we thank you very much. And we'd like to thank all of you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time. So until then, from all of us at LSD, go out and make it a great day.